but there are prayers in the Bible, and I think it's helpful sometimes to, to look at those prayers that we have in God's Word and use them to guide our own prayers. Uh, we can just read them as a prayer, um, or we can kind of think through and maybe even use our own words a little bit as we pray them. And I'm going to pray for us today as we get ready to look at the Word together, and I'm going to use uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, to, to guide the prayer uh, that I'll be giving for us. And so you're welcome to look at that. Um, it's okay to have your eyes open <laughs> if you want to look at, uh, look at th- these verses while I pray through them and just even uh, make these your own thoughts here from Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verses 20 and 21. So let me pray for us and uh, prepare our hearts for what God has for us today. God, you are the God of peace, and we, we honor you and, and worship you today as the one who has made peace for us with yourself through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, and you have made peace, made it so that we can have peace with each other and enjoy the unity that we have here today. Um, the Lord Jesus was not only crucified on the cross, but you, by your power, our God, brought him up from the dead And, Lord Jesus, you are the great shepherd of the sheep. You are our shepherd, our good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The great shepherd who is exalted and ascended on high. We are your sheep. We follow you. You feed us. And you did this through the blood of the everlasting covenant. You shed your blood for us to provide an eternal relationship with you a promise that cannot be broken because you're the one that made it. And so you, our God of peace and the Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us complete in every good work to do your will. We know that by ourselves we fall short. We know that we cannot do anything in our own strength. We can do nothing apart from you. So we need you to complete us. We need you to bring us to fullness to make us everything that you have purposed for us to be. And we want to do that in every good work, every kind of of good act that we can perform. And even as we look into this topic today, back in the book of Titus, I pray that you would enable us to apply it in, in the details of our lives, to do your will, not our own, but yours. So please work in us what is well-pleasing in your sight. Again, we cannot please you by ourselves. We cannot work up what pleases you. It must come from your work in us. And so we ask for that. And we do want to please you. We recognize that we are in your sight. We live our lives before you and want our lives to please you because you are our Lord. You are our Savior. And you are worthy of a life that pleases you. And we know we can only do this through Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice Jesus Christ made, through the strength we receive from Jesus Christ, through the intercessory work of Christ in our behalf right now as our high priest. And so we pray this through Jesus Christ, and ultimately we want him to receive the glory so that we don't get credit, we don't receive men's praise, but that you would be the one who gets the glory Not only in this short life that we live or the span of this universe, but forever and ever. Because, again, you are worthy. 
So we pray that our hearts as we listen, the choices we make as we respond to what we hear from your word today and how we live as we go from here in our homes where we work and where we cross paths with people, that you would receive the glory for all of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's find the book of Titus this morning. So just back a few pages to the left if you've already got your Bibles open. And uh, we are going to continue on our study of the book of Titus. We've talked about how Paul told Titus to urge those people on the island of Crete to not only learn what God's word says, not only learn the doctrines, but also to live by them. And today we're going to be looking at a very, uh, 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 just two verses in the passage with a very specific topic called a grace-motivated work ethic. A grace-motivated work ethic. Now we're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10, but I want to show you why I'm calling this a grace-motivated work ethic. So look with me first of all, starting with verse 11. And this really is the heart of this little letter of Paul, verses 11 and 12 and 13 and 14. And we'll get to those, Lord willing, next week. But I want to just identify why these guide us and point us to this truth we're looking at today in the preceding verses. So look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So here he's saying that that the grace of God, God's favor, God's undeserved goodness in your life, the way that he has been favorable to you by accepting you as his own, by blessing your life, by forgiving your sins, by giving you eternal life, all those things come to us by his grace, which is free to us, Jesus earned it for us so that we can receive it freely. And the little word for, F-O-R, at the beginning of verse 11, tells us that, that this grace is the reason for what precedes it. We might call it the motivation for what comes before it. It's the motivation. So God's grace to you is the motivation for what, what precedes it. In verse 11 and 12, he, he's saying that we should live in a way that is different from the world around us denying ungodliness and worldly lust. So, so being different from the people around you, from the culture that you are immersed in as a believer. So being different from that, but, but we should live. So there's the idea, learn and live in a way that is different, but in a positive way, a way that is sober and righteous and godly. Again, in this present age, this time, this culture, this world that we are immersed in as believers. So, so grace motivates us to live in a way that is different from the world around us and in a way that, that points to the God who saved us. And again, that four at the beginning of verse 11 points back and says, grace is the motivation for what he has just been talking about. And he's talking about everything that he's just been instructing Titus to teach the people in Crete there in chapter 2, the... Uh, the, the older men, the older women, the younger women, the young men, Titus himself. We've looked at all these instructions. He says, grace motivates you to, to live this way. And there's one more category of people that Paul addresses here in these verses right before 
verse 11. So look with me back a couple of verses there, starting in verse 9. So Titus 2, verse 9, he says, Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So that there you see a, a more precise description of how to live godly, how not to be ungodly, but how to live godly, how to deny yourself and deny worldly lust and live in a way that's godly in this present world. And he's talking to these, these people, or talking to Titus, telling him to teach these people who are in the category of bondservants. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But notice at the end of verse 10, he, he uses a purpose statement. He says, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. What do you think of when you see the word adorn? If something is adorned or someone is adorned, they are attractive, right? It's adorned. It's made to be attractive, to get your attention a little bit and to make you say, wow, that's nice or that's pretty or he looks good or she's beautiful. They're adorned a little bit. Well, that's what he's saying that, that the lives the conduct of these bondservants could do. Their conduct in, in their day-to-day life and their day-to-day conduct could actually adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Doctrine is teaching. God our Savior is the truth about God. So the doctrine of God our Savior is the truth about God and Jesus and the gospel. Now, would you say that, that God and Jesus and the gospel are naturally grand and magnificent? Yes, God and the gospel are. So, so it's kind of incredible that, that people's conduct can beautify what people see of who God is and what people understand of the gospel even more and can make it attractive and cause people to look twice and to think about it. It puts it on display and attracts people to it. Now let's talk about this, this group that Paul singles out when he talks to, tells Titus to teach these people, these bondservants. Uh, we might use the word slaves, and you might see that in, in a translation of the Bible, slave or bond slave. This was a human being who was owned by another human being and who was forced to work for them. We would call it a lowly position, right? A very lowly position. And many times, these slaves were forced to do menial tasks. It was hard work, and often the undesired, unwanted, distasteful kind of chores and and labor that their owners did not want to do. So they forced their slaves to do them. Slaves were a large percentage of the population of the Roman Empire. In fact, some estimates are that during this time, two-thirds of the population of the Roman Empire were actually in this category of bond servants or bond slaves. So it was a lot of people. And many of them heard the gospel, and many of them were saved. They became Christians, and they, they worshipped with believers, with other Christians. Let's say, for example, here on the island of Crete. So here Paul's addressing this category of people, bond slaves, and of course the question immediately comes to our mind, well, what does that have to do with me? How does that relate to us? It isn't likely that 
People sitting here today are in this category. But as always in Scripture, there is a principle for us. There is a truth that we can glean. There is a lesson that we can learn and apply from even this instruction that Paul gave to Titus to pass on to these these bond slaves. And I think it is this. Anybody in a work situation, let's say, doing day-to-day work, even in, in a lowly position, doing menial tasks, has potential to make great impact for God. So, so anybody in even a lowly, even in the lowest of positions, doing menial work, has the potential for high gospel impact. So, if you are in any kind of role, any kind of position, and I think a natural correlation for us today is in a work situation where you are low on the ladder, you're at the bottom, you're maybe near the bottom of the ladder of, uh, of status and, and position and salary and all of that. Maybe you're very, very low or just somewhere on the lower end, let's say. And you do menial tasks. You just labor. You perform hard work. It's not the glamorous stuff. It's not always the behind-the-desk, calling-the-shots stuff. Menial tasks. You have potential. And the way that you do your work has potential for high gospel impact. And, and what it did for those bond slaves and what it can do for any of us is give great meaning and significance to, to what we do when we go to work. Now, you may not be in one of those positions right now, but I think most, if not all, of you here today do have influence on other people, possibly as a parent or as a grandparent, and there are people in your life that you can influence to think this way, that you can encourage and even train to have these attitudes and to, to perform this kind of work. Or we can always pray for each other, can't we? In fact, we can pray for our fellow church members and use Titus 2, 9, and 10 as a little prayer list. And again, it it correlates, I think, very well to what we just prayed from Hebrews, where he he says, I pray that you would would be complete in all the will of God and be well-pleasing to him in all things, to do every good work, right? So, So it corresponds, if we're going to please God and do his will in every area of our lives, every detail of our lives, that includes... If we're in a lowly position doing a menial task and we can develop in these ways ourselves, we can teach them to others, we can pray for them, pray for these to come to fruition in the lives of people that we know. So this text shows us how this can happen, how we can be in lowly positions doing menial work and how we can have high gospel impact. It was true for first century Christian slaves and it is true for 21st century Christians who do any kind of work. So let's see how this relates to us today. First of all, a grace-motivated work ethic is, is for the common person. And let's, let's investigate this idea of bond servants or bond slaves for a few minutes. We often think of slaves as being in chains, being abused, maybe beaten, and formed to forced to perform incredibly hard labor. And there certainly would have been some of that in uh, the lives of these people that Paul was talking about. 
But there's a sense in which slaves were the common man, the everyday worker, the common laborer in the Roman Empire. These were individuals who were either captured in war, so they were, we might say, kidnapped. They were, they were taken captive in war and brought back to the Roman Empire and then sold or used as slaves. Some of them were Roman citizens, but they were unable to pay their debt. They could not pay their creditors, and so they had to work and, and then give a portion of their salary or even most of their wages to their credit, the person that they owed money to. And they were considered bond slaves. And, and as I said, that as much as two-thirds of the population of the Roman Empire in the first and second centuries were slaves. And because they'd been, a lot of them had been captive, or if some of them were even, we might say, uh, tradesmen or even professionals in the Roman Empire who, who became indebted to others, often they were, they were skilled laborers. Uh, they might have even been um, doctors or philosophers, architects, writers, teachers. And some of them worked a regular job in the community, just like a job that you or I would go to, but then they had to pay up to two-thirds of their wages to their owners. Many of them worked right beside free citizens. So think of where some of you work, and let's say you are a citizen, and you are not indebted to anybody, and you're a free person, but working right next to you in the next cubicle or the next workstation um, is uh, somebody who is a slave, who is owned by someone or who pays a majority of their wages to somebody else. So we might say their occupations, in many cases, were similar to ours. There was abuse and unfair treatment. Some masters treated their slaves cruelly, beat them, starved them, forced them to toil in mines or in construction crews. After the slave revolt in 73 BC, if you've ever seen the movie Spartacus, it's about that, some were given better treatment, and they even became trusted household servants and property managers. And when we, when we read the word sometimes steward, we're a steward in the New Testament. That's the idea. A slave who is a household manager, who has been given a position of trust, is responsible for the, the, the functions and sometimes even the finances and people, children in a household. That's what a steward is. Slaves worked with citizens and they worshipped with citizens. And that is why Paul addressed bond slaves and also, in other of his letters, masters. Christians who were masters in the churches in Crete and other cities as well. Now, a question immediately comes to mind. So is the Bible condoning slavery? And the answer is no, it's not. The Bible is describing a cultural situation. Um, It doesn't instruct us. The Bible did not instruct these slaves to transform society, but to live as Christ followers in society. So there's no affirmation or validation of slavery here. That's not what this is about. It's saying who you are, where you are, the circumstances you find yourself in, here's how to live as a Christian in even a very difficult situation. So the point is, slaves were common people in a hardship situation, and that might be similar to to many of us. Normal people with different backgrounds and skills. You may love what you do, You 
may not be doing what you would choose if you could choose. Your work may be fulfilling, or it may be toil, it may be drudgery. You may hate to go to work. You may be treated unfairly, or you may have to deal with with management that shows partiality or is unfair, and sometimes it's directed that way because you are a Christian. And that can be difficult. That can be challenging. Well, how do we live? Well, this uh, grace-motivated work ethic is for all of us, common people, maybe in lowly positions, doing menial tasks, maybe not being treated well, but with the potential for high gospel impact. And isn't it interesting that the gospel touches every area of our lives? So this grace-motivated work ethic is for all of us. And it includes every aspect of our work. So if we're going to correlate these verses to, to ourselves and, and to, to our work life, uh, notice he says in, in verse 9 at the end of the verse, in all things, and again at the end of verse 10, in all things. So Paul doesn't just talk about talking generalities. He's saying in everything you do. I give a little bit of thought to what in all things could include, and you can do this yourself. You can brainstorm and think, okay, what does in all things look like in, in my work life? So I, I sorted it this way. So this could include important responsibilities, the, the, the responsibilities we think of as being important, big decisions, uh, important presentations, major assignments, uh, projects that have you know a, a big... Um, uh, significance to how the, the business runs or the work that we do. So, so the important responsibilities, but also the ones that are not so important. The day-to-day tasks, returning emails, running errands, the little chores that we have that are part of our work life. So important and not so important responsibilities. In all things reaches to not only our actions, but also our attitudes. So our attitudes as well as our actions, not only how we perform our work, but what is in our mind, what's in our hearts as we do it. Are we joyful or do we complain? Are we trying to just please people or do we have a heart to please God? Are we motivated by pride or is there an attitude of humility as we do our work? So important and not important responsibilities, attitudes as well as actions, and then by yourself and with people. So in all can include when you're by yourself as well as when you're with people. In fact, some interpret in all to mean among all, like, like among all the people that are around you, here's how you should, should do your work. And I think there, there's an immediate um, um, application to, to us even in our day because a lot of work has moved out of the office, isn't it? Um, a lot of people are working remotely and are a lot more free to use their time as they wish, to squander time, to waste time, to not be completely honest about the work that they're doing. And so, so whether you are by yourself or whether you have people around you who are holding you accountable and watching what you do, um, we, should, we should have this work ethic in every aspect of our work. So if you want to have high gospel impact where you work, I think the response to this is to, to think of every element of our work, 
what's important, what seems to not be so important, our attitudes, our actions when we're by ourselves, when we're, when we're with people, and anything else you can think of that, that in, is included in all things, and take that and submit that to the Lordship of Christ. And say, Lord, you are over this. You are my ultimate master. I want to please you. I want my work, performance, as well as my attitudes, while I work to please you. You are my Lord. Evaluate what you do and your attitudes. And again, bear this greater motivation in mind. Now, this points us then to the specifics that Paul addresses So we want to see specifically how we can have a grace-motivated work ethic that has high gospel impact. And and Paul lists some qualities here. And he says, Titus, urge the people, urge these bondservants to have these qualities. So, So this work ethic encourages qualities that maximize your gospel impact. And there are five of them. Look at what he says in verse 9. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters. So we'll call this first quality submissive to authority. There are two Greek words that are used for obedience or to obey. You see in this New King James translation the word obedient or to be obedient. And there are two Greek words from which the New Testament was translated that, that can can have the meaning obedient. One of them has to do with our actions, what we do in response to an authority. The other one has to do more with our attitudes. And that's what this word is. In fact, if you think of uh, the verse that, that encourages wives to submit themselves, to be in submission to their husbands, that's this same word. It means that, that you make a choice, that you, you formulate an attitude that says, you know what, I'm going to consciously choose to arrange myself under the leadership, under the authority of this person. So it's not just outward conformity. It is an attitude of submission. A master could certainly force a slave to outwardly obey. But the attitude of submission is a choice. And Paul is saying, hey, Titus, exhort these bondservants, these slaves, to have an attitude, to choose to have an attitude of submission. And you can imagine. So if, 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 if a slave was taken captive by a, a raiding army and brought back and sold as a slave, that, that person could be an army officer. They could have been a government leader or a successful business owner who is now taken captive and made a slave and forced to be subservient, and that person would have to make a choice. Wouldn't that be challenging? That would be extremely hard. And, and grace pushes a Christian slave to make that choice and to have a submissive attitude. Now, again, we're thinking in terms of contrast here, right? So not being ungodly, not being conformed to the world, but being godly in how we do this. So what is an ungodly person's attitude toward authority? Well, being critical, tolerating, um, having conversations among the workers that, that malign and bash and run down that authority. That's what the world does. That's what the break room looks like maybe, where some of us work. It is different for Christians. We have an attitude of respect, of supportiveness, 
toward those in authority over us, even in the work setting. And that is a reflection of God's grace in your life. Submissiveness to authority. You may be smarter than your superiors. You might have more creative ideas than those who are telling you what to do. You may know how to work in a more efficient way than than your supervisor has instructed you and maybe even forces you to do your job. And that can be frustrating. Especially if you, if your mind and even your your understanding and your skill is is at a higher level than the person over you, that can be very frustrating, can it? And I think that's what he's addressing here. Even those with a background of authority and ability placed under the authority of a master say, you know what? You need to submit yourself to that master. You need to make a choice to submit yourself. And for a Christian, we're motivated to do that by grace. Another quality is being motivated to please. As he says in verse 9, to be well-pleasing in all things. The idea of this word, well-pleasing, is that your work is satisfactory. You do good work. You have a job description, and you know what that job description is, and you follow it, and you fulfill it. Your project has guidelines, and you follow them. Your corporate culture has protocols, and and you don't buck those to do whatever you want. You have a yearly evaluation, and when your manager or supervisor or or business owner sits down with you and says, here's what you're doing well, and here's what you need to work on, and you're thinking, well, I don't really care about that. I'm doing good enough, and I'm going to do it the way I want to. That's an ungodly attitude, isn't it? That's a worldly mindset. He says, no, think in terms of how you can be well-pleasing. How you can do satisfactory work. A worldly attitude is, I'm going to do it my way. A grace-motivated attitude is, I'm going to respect my employer, and I'll do it their way. Now, we know that does not mean that if your boss tells you to do something that's immoral or illegal or unbiblical, that you do that, right? Because we have a higher authority, and so we can make an appeal or... We do what's right before God, and if necessary, take the consequences. Now, turn over with me to Colossians chapter 3 just for a minute. Colossians chapter 3, this is where Paul says something very similar in his letter to the Colossians, but he adds another dimension to it I want you to see. So look at Colossians chapter 3, and uh, verse 22, Colossians 3.22 He says in Colossians 3.22, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart fearing God. So, what's Paul saying here? Don't just do it to please men, right? Let your motivation be that you do your work as a form of worship to God. Do it to please him in fear of him, in awe of him. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. If you don't like your master, if you don't like your employer, if you don't like your manager, your supervisor, your foreman, guess what? That's okay. You're supposed to be submissive to them and endeavor to please them and respect them, but ultimately you serve God. He is your master. He is your Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. There's no partiality 
Masters, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, you give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So that's talking to you if you are in that supervisory position. You are the, the owner of the business. You are the boss. You have a responsibility before God too, don't you? To do what is right, what is just, what is fair, and be conscious of the fact that you have a master, and that master is God. So the emphasis here for all of us is to, to not just please our human masters, but to please our Lord, please our Lord. And we need to have that as a conscious attitude, don't we? And maybe that's a reminder to have for yourself as you go into whatever that work setting is for you. Uh, Maybe it's a verse that you read. Maybe it's something that you pray as you're on your way. Maybe it's a card you put on your dashboard or on your computer screen, just a reminder what you're doing and why you're doing it and who you're doing it for and what your motivation is for that. Now let's go back to Titus, and we see another way that our work can have high gospel impact, another quality. And that is by not being disagreeable. We see this in verse 9, not answering back, not answering back. To answer back means to speak against someone. And again, many of these slaves were educated and skilled and could naturally be argumentative or defiant. Say, that's not the way it should be done. I'm not going to do that. Could just assert themselves. And he's saying, don't be like that. Don't be the argumentative one. Don't be the disagreeable one. And you see the word not in there. And and this this emphasizes the fact that, that what he's addressing is the norm. So answering back, slaves being argumentative would have been the norm in their culture and in their world. It was common for slaves to resist and argue. And again, it doesn't mean that you cannot disagree But how is your attitude? Is it defiant or is it supportive? You may work someplace where there is an individual with a really bad attitude. Maybe they show disrespect toward the boss. Maybe they talk negatively about other workers or the owner of the company. And the the challenge here is to not become like that person. And the tendency is for us to join in, right? Or even just to to assent, to agree. He's saying don't be like that because if you are the disagreeable one, if you are the defiant one, you make the gospel not pretty, but you make it ugly. You make the gospel stink. That gives Christianity a bad name. So Paul's saying don't be that person. Don't let yourself get caught up in the trash talk. Be willing to be different. Don't be like this. And and another negative after that, another quality that is negative, he says not pilfering, not pilfering. That's not a common word that we use. Paul uses it here. To pilfer is to take advantage of access to materials, resources, money, because of the responsibility that you have or because of trust that's been placed in you. So, so pilfering is taking advantage of access to those things because you're in a position 
And, and you use that position to take what belongs to someone else, usually the employer or the company, and to keep it for yourself. That's what pilfering is. So, so it's taking what isn't ours, right? And people, people justify this. There was a, a husband and wife who were in the church where Faith and I were a while back, and they owned a business, and I was actually talking about, about this, and um, her husband had passed away, so the, the wife, the widow, was actually running the business at that point on her own before she sold it and retired from that. But I, I brought this up, and, and I, I actually asked her, I said, so what, what about this? Does, does this kind of thing happen? She says, oh, yeah, it does. And she said, they make excuses. Employees make excuses. Um, they say, well, everybody does it. That's one excuse. Everybody does this. Another one is, uh, the company owes it to me. I work hard. I put in my time. They owe it to me. Another one is, they're not going to miss it. They've got plenty. And then, and then I don't get paid enough anyway. So, so I feel justified in, in doing this and taking this. So there are lots of, of ways that people justify this. There are common things that workers pilfer, and these are all based on real-life examples. So listen to these four major areas for all of us to be cautious about and to not be like the world around us by pilfering in these ways. The first one is obvious. It's money. Cashiers taking cash out of the till. Uh, salesmen using an expense account for personal purchases, selling a product and inflating the price and keeping the difference, having access to funds through uh, being part of the, the, the business area or accounting or finances and skimming some of those funds for yourself, so, so money. The second category is products, purchasing materials or supplies and keeping some of those for yourself. Removing items from a warehouse and selling them on Facebook Marketplace or somewhere like that. Uh, People smuggle products out of a warehouse or out of a manufacturing plant or out of an office sometimes in a backpack or briefcase. So money, products. The third one is equipment or tools. So using company tools and then forgetting to return them. Damaging them and not reporting it. Or the uh, situation where a nice power tool happens to fall off your truck and lands in your garage, and it just kind of stays there. Um, So equipment or tools. What do you think the biggest area of, um, of employees taking something from the company is? It's not money. It's not product. It's not equipment or tools. What do you think's left? Time. Exactly. It's time. Right. And, and we all sometimes have our ups and downs, our high-energy times, our low-energy times, and, and there are breaks that we take legitimately. But the biggest time waster is, what do you think? Visiting non-work websites on company time. And companies lose massive amounts of money that way. So what he's saying here is, don't be like this. We are not guided by what everybody else does. Our standard is God's word, which tells us to not steal. But our motivation is even greater than that. It's not just God says don't. Our motivation is to be distinct so that we adorn the gospel. So that people notice that difference. And it makes them question and wonder why that difference is there. And to maximize our gospel impact. 
Flip over to Philippians for a minute. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Verse 14. Philippians 2, verse 14. Another good uh, couple of work, work verses. Philippians 2, verse 14 says, Philippians 2, 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Verse 15. That you may become. And again, notice the negatives. Blameless and harmless. Blameless. In other words, when... When the evaluations are done, when the accounts are, are checked, nobody's coming to you saying, hey, you did this. You did this. Blameless. Harmless. Children of God, there is your identity. There is your distinction without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we're supposed to be distinct. We're supposed to be different. We're not supposed to give in and be shaped by and conform to the way people around us do it. Everybody's doing it. We deserve it. They don't pay us enough anyway. They won't miss it. Those are not good reasons for Christians to do this. None of them. Because we are motivated by something bigger, something greater. Not just you shall not steal, but we are the children of God and we are to be lights in the world around us. Christians should be known not as takers but as givers, shouldn't we? As givers. Another quality that we see here, and this one's in verse 10, back in Titus chapter 2. Verse 10, he says, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity. So now we move back to the positive side. Showing all good fidelity, and this means to be trustworthy. Uh, the New Living Translation says, show themselves. They show themselves to be entirely trustworthy. This means that when you are assigned a task or a project, people can count on it being done. And you are on the job, and you are on time, and when there's a problem, when there's a delay, you communicate so everybody is aware of what's going on, and people aren't wondering and and pursuing and chasing you and trying to hunt down answers and details and results and where is this, why isn't it on time, why aren't they here. You're trustworthy, reliable. When there are problems, you communicate about those. Everybody knows what's going on. Christians should be the most reliable workers on the job. Showing, he says. The idea is, is proving. You prove out your profession of being a Christian in the way that you do your work by being trustworthy. So a good question is, does your work ethic give coworkers a reason to trust you? Can they trust you? Can they rely on you? If they can't trust your work, why should they believe what you say about the gospel? Being trustworthy points to the gospel. Being untrustworthy erodes people's willingness to listen to the gospel. So what is it that motivates us? And let's come back around to this, this statement that Paul ends with here in verse 10. What is it that motivates us to do good work, to be honest and reliable, to be willing to be different? Verse 10, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And this is a purpose clause. In fact, it probably applies to all of the, the instructions and all the preceding groups of people that Paul has been addressing. So, so all of this instruction of how to live, men, women, 
Everybody, he says, and workers, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And, and I'm wording it this way, let me explain. A grace-motivated work ethic turns heads toward gospel truth. If you see something that is attractive, what do you do? You stop and you look at it. You admire it. It might cause you to look twice. You're going past in your car and you see something out of the corner of your eye and all of a sudden your head snaps around because you want to see what that was. It caught your eye. It turned your head. And this kind of work ethic turns heads toward gospel truth. To adorn is to make it attractive, to cause people to take a second look, to give people a reason to want to know more. And what this means is that we, we have this motivation that our work is not primarily about a paycheck. Now, we all want to have our needs provided, and we go to work so that we can earn those wages, earn that salary to provide for our needs, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's legitimate. God has designed and made it that way. But our work is not just about that, and we would probably say it's not primarily about getting a paycheck. It is about creating opportunities for people to see Jesus. And would you be willing to think of your work in this way? Your job is a ministry. And the place where you work is a place of ministry. Just like this church building is a place of ministry. And what we do here is ministry. When you go to your place of work or when you sit at your computer at home, wherever it is, if you, if you, as you ride in your truck, as you're on the job site, Wherever you are, that is a place of ministry, and your work is ultimately worship to God. Fearing God, Paul said in Colossians 3. In awe of God, we work in awe of God, and it is an opportunity to display the distinctiveness of followers of Jesus Christ. Your place of ministry is a venue for evangelism. And he says, God our Savior. He keeps emphasizing The Savior. What does a Savior do? Saves, which implies that people need saving, doesn't it? We need saving. We need a Savior. And notice something else that Paul says, God, does he say your Savior, their Savior? What does he say? Tell me out loud. God what? What does he say? God, our Savior, which means he was including himself And if you know anything about Paul, he was a pretty good person, wasn't he, before he met Jesus? In other words, he did all the right things. He knew the right truths. He performed the right ceremonies. He fulfilled the religious obligations that he thought would merit favor with God. But then one day he realized he came up short. Paul was as near perfect as any person could be. And and we are nowhere close to the level of religious accomplishments of Paul. And if Paul could say, I need a Savior, and God is my Savior, then certainly we do. And we see, down in verses 13 and 14, the way that God saves us. Look at what he says in verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that's talking about his death on the cross, in our place for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed 
and purify for himself his own special people. Look at what it says. Zealous, eager, passionate about doing good works. And that includes the kind of works we're talking about here today. Our work life. So, so God saves us through Jesus Christ. He redeems us to himself and then sends us out to do good work for him. Once you have God as your Savior, you will want your co-workers to be saved by him as well. You will want them to have God, for them to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Isn't that true? That's what you'll want for them. So, what can you do? Put your co-workers on a prayer list and pray for them. Engage in personal, friendly conversations with them. Get to know your co-workers Hang out with them at lunch or on breaks and show interest in who they are as individuals and their families. Maybe as a difficult situation comes up and they say, yes, we're struggling with this health issue or my son or my daughter is going through this or I have this family member or this problem in, in my, my, with my house. Do you mind if I pray for you about that? Somebody might say no. Or they might say, yes, I mind. No, I don't want you to pray for me about that. But most people say, oh, well, sure, okay. You can pray for me about that. And then pray for them about it. And then come back and say, hey, how's that going? I prayed for you about that. And are you doing that as a trick? Are you doing that as a way to entice them into listening to the gospel? Well, we should be doing it just because we truly care about them, shouldn't we? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's loving your neighbor. It's just showing unconditional love. Hey, I'm interested in you. I care about you. How can I pray for you? How's that going? But it can also turn into an opportunity for them to say, so tell me about all that. How is it that you know how to pray? How is it that you can pray and and think that God listens and might answer your prayer? How is it that you're so positive? How is it that you go through your challenging situations and and you seem to have a calm and, and a security that others around us don't have. And why is it you work so hard with a smile on your face? And why don't you complain? And you have the opportunity, don't you, to give that reason for the hope that's in you. Put them on your prayer list. Have casual conversations. Talk to them. And you might sometimes say, have you ever wondered what the Bible says about that? Would you be interested in a Bible study? You may be amazed at the opportunities that you will have. We can't force that to happen, but God can certainly open those doors, can't he? And that's why we're there. Imagine a work evaluation where your manager, supervisor, employer, and your coworkers evaluate you. And they fill out a form. And here are the criteria. Submissive to authority. Motivated to please, not disagreeable, not taking what isn't yours, completely trustworthy. How would they rate you? How do they see you? And now check your heart. What is your motivation for your work? Is it just a paycheck? Is it personal fulfillment? Certainly, I think God designed us to be fulfilled in our work. But it isn't always fulfilling, is it? Opportunities for advancement? Or is your ultimate motivation so that you can have gospel impact and bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ to do it for him? 
Grace teaches us to live and to work for higher motives, higher motives, and may these be ours. Could we just quietly bow together and still your hearts for a minute, quiet your hearts? Think about how God has addressed your heart, your life today. Before we all move away from this moment, this place, reflect some of those thoughts back to God. God, thank you for what you've shown me today. Thank you for speaking to an area of my life today. Maybe you want to name that. Maybe there's something that needs to be adjusted, to be realigned, to be repented of, to be changed and transformed. Ask God to help you with that. Be open and honest with him about that. And then ask him to strengthen and enable you to be the person that pleases him and has an impact on others for the gospel in your work, wherever and whatever that may be. Father, help us not to merely want to conform outwardly in these areas, in these ways, but to be truly transformed in our hearts. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, for all of us, that this would shape how we think and how we live and how we work, ultimately for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with a song. Well, I'd love to take credit for the appropriateness of uh, trust and obey.